Hi everyone, welcome to Fighting for Writing. Today I am at home and I was cleaning out my old room and by home I mean home in Colorado. I live somewhere else right now but Colorado is my home. This is where I grew up and I'm back here to visit my family, my cousin and my brother. We're on my last couple of episodes and then I was cleaning my room, my old room while I was here in Colorado and I found guys okay I found the first draft to my soul eater novel and I also found the handwritten draft of that really crappy ancient Egyptian story that I was writing that is just a ripoff of the mummy and of course I started to read them and especially <laughs> The ancient Egyptian one, I was laughing so much that I was like, I just need to make this a podcast episode where I read the beginning of these stories and laugh because they're so dumb. But because I found those, I also found some other things. So I thought it would be fun to read some of my writings from forever ago. Literally, I have the first one. We're going to get to the Soul Eater and the ancient Egyptian one. But first, I have two little stories. One of them is called How Dinosaurs Lived. And there I'm going to put pictures of this one because there's illustrations with how dinosaurs lived. I was maybe six when I wrote this. It's by Tate. And <laughs> it's supposed to say club books, but I couldn't get my D's and my B's correct. So now it just says clud books at the bottom. I don't know what club this was for because I don't remember us ever having a dinosaur club. It was probably my own little club I decided to make by myself. But here's How Dinosaurs Lived by Tate Clud Books. Dinosaurs lived a long, long, long time ago. Then they got hurt. Then they died. Then they became bones. Then people found them. The end. <laughs> that might not be as funny for you, but guys, like I said, I'm going to post these pictures on Instagram of the actual pages of this book. Go look at them. They cracked me up. So that was the first story, How Dinosaurs Lived by me. The second one is How the Leopard Got His Spots. It's still handwritten. I have no idea what grade I was in when I wrote this. It's like a page and a half handwritten. So... This is how the leopard, spelled incorrectly, spelled L-E-P-O-R-D, got his spots. A long time ago, in ancient Africa, there was a leopard with no spots. Every animal in Africa laughed at him and said, look, that leopard has no spots. Ha ha! Then the leopard ran and hid in a big bush and then thought of something. The leopard ran to the mud and rolled in it. He wasn't all covered, but he exclaimed, I have hundreds of spots on me. He ran to show the others, but while he was running, the mud dried, cracked, and fell off into the tall, dry grass. When he came to where, which I spelled were, so when he came to were, the animals were, he said, hey, look, guys, I have spots. They looked at him and said, no, you don't and laughed, spelled with a PH instead of a GH. Then the leopard 
saw what had happened to the mud and ran away again to the big bush. This time he heard the nice, soothing voice of Mother Earth. She said, Leopard, leopard, if you want spots, go to the village across the river. There you will see a man painting a picture. He will help you. Thank you, said Leopard, and took off, which I spelled of, so took of, to the village. When he got there, he saw a man painting a picture. The man saw the leopard and said in a soft voice, Ah, there you are. I was waiting for you to get here. Come into my house. The leopard followed the man. The man said, Lay down on the rug. Go to sleep, and in the morning you'll have spots. While, which I spelled W-I-apostrophe-L-L, while the leopard was sleeping, the man painted black spots on the leopard. In the morning, when the leopard woke up, he was delighted with his spots and said thank you to the man. Then the man said, now you can run free in the wild and be happy. And that's what happened to the leopard. The end. I think I wrote this when we were writing, not like fables, but we had read probably some obviously watered down versions of creation myths or how animals became the way they were like how the bunny got his ears or how the lion got its mane or something some random things like that and that's probably probably after reading those and talking about them in class in elementary school we had to write our own story and so that was mine mine was how the leopard got his spots so those were two stories from when I was very very young but still love to write now we're getting into the soul eater one, which wasn't <clears throat> as bad as the ancient Egyptian one, which we will get to. But I thought it was funny. I have like their characters written out on the beginning. And remember how I was talking about how I had the dumbest names for her brother, like the most stereotypical comic book type names, even though I've crossed most of them out and circled the one I eventually picked for him, but not really because I changed it all later. They were Death Heart, Black Fire, Black Ice, and Death Fire. And the one I have circled is Death Fire. So originally he was called Death Fire, which made no sense because he froze people. So like he froze people to death. Let's see what it says. <clears throat> he freezes people and then melts them to pools of black water at his feet. Yep. Alrighty. So this is my soul eater story. I'm trying to see. Oh, and the boy in the story, the person who became the boy in the story, was it originally just called Phantom. He had no name. He was just Phantom. Like the Phantom of the Opera Phantom, just Phantom. So here we go. Here are the first pages or page, I don't know how much I'm going to read, of the original draft of my Soul Eater novel. And this, remember, was when I was 12. A lone boy patrolled the streets, crashing into garbage cans on purpose so he could look inside to see if there was any food. Whenever he walked through the shadows, he would disappear only to reappear a few seconds later when stepping into the light of a street lamp. The boy wore shabby clothes, no more than rags, and his eyes ached of hunger, all hunger. Hunger for food, for friends, 
hunger to be loved. He stopped by a trash can that looked promising. Chicken bones littered the top. He began to dig through it, pawing frantically to find a scrap of food. That's why he didn't hear or see the man dressed in black slowly approaching him. Hungry boy? The boy looked up, fear in his aquamarine eyes. No one had ever talked to him, and now a man, well-dressed and rich-looking, was asking if he was hungry. Frightened, he stepped into the shadows immediately disappearing. The man laughed. It was a cold, hollow laugh. You think you could hide from me in the shadows? I can still see you. The man laughed again. I can see all. The boy, now more frightened than ever, turned to run. He ran a few steps before a wall of flame burst to life before him. He turned, more fire, and standing in the fire, the man, laughing, 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 never stopping, that cruel laugh, always. Honestly, I think this part was pretty good for a 12-year-old. Um, I thought it was funny that I had to point out that the boy's eyes were aquamarine because I just remember being taught in middle school, which is, I would have been either in sixth grade or after sixth grade, like the summer after when I wrote this, to be very descriptive. And then I just loved that I described the man as rich looking. What does that even mean? Like rich people dress different ways. They can dress however they want. They can dress in suits or they can dress in really nice designer t-shirts and baggy jeans. What does that mean? And then I loved how many times I said the word laughing, laughing, laughing. I was like, geez, this man just really loves to laugh. But like I said, overall, I was pretty impressed with this part. Now we're getting into the second part. So there's like a little break. So it's the lone boy part. Then there's, you know, the break that would signalize like a new chapter or a different part of the chapter. Like a shift in narration, basically. Beep, slam, dang it. My hand reached up to flick off the alarm clock. Clock, the alarm clock. Crap, I fell asleep again. I really need to catch someone tonight. I'm starving. I stood up, letting the weight of the world crash down on my shoulders. I could hear everyone's scream, pain, thought of evil. Yeah, it's just a single scream, by the way. I could hear everyone's scream. So apparently we're only allowed to scream once. Anyway, back to the story. Growling, I tuned it out and pulled back the curtains. Bright sunlight filled my small room. Not that it was my only room. I owned the whole building. Every little scrap of this unfilled building was unfinished building was mine. So was the world. Not really, but it was nice to feel on top of the world. It was only midday, and I couldn't hunt until nightfall. Couldn't satisfy my hunger on those evil souls until night. Because I really had to point out it was night. Like, I couldn't hunt until nightfall, and I couldn't get those evil souls until night. Night, night, night. Okay. Sighing and starving, I prepared for my day. Brushing my strawberry blonde hair, changing into my black shirt and jeans, the only clothes I ever wore, and brushing my white pointy teeth. I loved it here in this abandoned place all to myself. No close thoughts I'd have to listen to. Taking a deep breath, I was about to step through the door when I heard his laugh. Merciless, hollow laugh. And I stiffened. I bound to the window, yanking back the curtains. Where was he? 
I scanned the streets, finding everyone but him. He haunted me wherever I went, always. No going out today, not with that laugh haunting me. Closing the door, I went back to sleep. My thoughts on this part are the strawberry blonde hair. That is my hair color. So I was basically just describing me. Black t-shirt and jeans. I wear more colors than black, but yeah, I do just wear a t-shirt and jeans. So basically I was just describing myself in this. Here's the next part. Nighttime, dark time, best time for hunting. At around 10 that night, the laugh no longer bothering me. I'd set out to steal a soul or two for my own. Yes, I do suck souls. It's my food source. And that laugh came from my father, someone not to be mentioned at night. My wall was up. I could hear nothing but cars in the distance. This was New York, not New York City. No, a small town, but dangerous enough. Dangerous and evil enough for good prey. I let my wall down. No, please help. Don't hurt me. I haven't done anything wrong. I'll kill you. I'll... Wait. I whispered. I had it, a target. I'll kill you. Kill you. I took a deep breath, tracing what the person had said. Found it. West Avenue, five blocks away. Move quickly. I began to run. I was attracted to evil. I could feel the evil people, hear in my head what they say. This was how my hunts began. I feel like this part is just very awkward. I also thought it was funny that I was like, this is New York, but not New York City. It's a small town, but still big enough to have bad people in it. Like, this is just a bunch of crap. All right. <laughs> I feel like I'm only going to read one more part because I just can't wait to get to the ancient Egyptian one. I don't think I brought my water here with me. Oh, I did. Okay, good. Sorry. Next part. He watched her. Watched her step out the old building. Stop. Breathe deeply then run. Smiling, he turned to jump to the next building where he sensed the evil. Everything was cold. He suppressed a yell. Master, he managed calmly. I believe I've found her. I will report to you in the morning. The wind stirred, the coldness left, and the man turned back to follow her. So honestly, overall, this, like, wasn't too bad for a 12-year-old, I thought. It was just not good either for where I'm at right now. And the whole part about strawberry blonde hair and the laughing and this is New York but not New York City because I don't know anything. It was just, it was silly. But now we're going to get to the ancient Egyptian story. If you haven't seen The Mummy, go and watch it. The Mummy with Brandon Fraser. And Rachel Weisz and Arnold Boslew. Oh, it's going to bother me that I can't remember the actor who plays Jonathan's name right now. But go watch that one and then listen to how this starts. Because this is going to get good, right? This is the one that I started just laughing out loud because one, rip off of the mummy. Two, this writing is absolute crap. So get ready for this, guys. This is my ripoff of The Mummy, Untitled. Whew. Um, I just put a note at the top, by the way, of my handwritten note in this, what's the color? Blue composition notebook. I wrote note. All ancient cities are fiction. Just so you know, this is not real. 
All right, here we go. Rip off of the money, mummy, the money. No, rip off of the mummy, my ancient Egyptian story. That's what it should be called. If I ever um, publish this, that's what I'm going to call it. All right. <laughs> this is just, this is. All righty. Here we go. Katheda, blossoming city of Egypt, situated next to the Nile River, capital of the ancients of 1300 BC. Under the rule of Tsuka, crowned pharaoh, and home to his royal counselors and their families. Okay, I'm going to make comments about this one throughout, by the way. None of these are like ancient Egyptian names. I didn't even do any research. I was just like, yep, this is a city called Katheda and the prince, or sorry, the pharaoh is called Zuka. Z-U-K-A. No research done whatsoever. Basically, my research was watching the mummy. So there you go. So, under rule of Zuka, crowned pharaoh and home to his royal counselors and their families. But above all, home to Imanand, his advisor and most trusted friend, along with Ojit, Imanand's sister and outcast of Katheda. She practiced the way of a soldier, the fighting ways, and in comparison to other ta others' tanner skin and darker hairs, she was white. Once again, I basically just put myself in as the character for everyone in these stories. Ojit is described as me skin tone wise and hair wise <laughs> she knew of all the plants and animals of egypt and could tame both for these things most called her a witch Imanon loved and trusted her though always said she helped him in more ways than most thought dun 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 for ojit secretly corresponded between Eminand and emusher his love it was forbidden for advisors of the pharaoh to ever engage in love with a woman. It was also a crime to love one of an underclass. Emusher's family had once been close to Tsuka, until her father had committed an odious crime, and her family's honor was lost. Still, Emanon loved her, and through Ojit, the only one who knew their secret, they could meet together and share their passions for one another. Yeah, you see how great this is, right? Okay, here we go. Emma Shear means kitten, but she's really quite the opposite. Not shy, always watching. More of a lion, perhaps. Ojit muttered to herself while sharpening a knife. Yes, quite the opposite, especially when tending to the pharaoh's entertaining needs. She has a mouth. Ojit smiled. She liked Emma Shear. She wasn't like other girls. She'd even asked Ojit to teach her what she knew of weapons whenever she could. She liked that, that someone besides her brother did not think her a witch. Ojit, a hand grasped her shoulder. You passed the message to Emusher, yes? Ojit sighed. <sighs> Just because I am eleven years thy younger, Emanand, does not make me irresponsible. Emanand smiled and parted the hair from her face. So unlike other people, Ojit thought. Most people grabbed her hair, tugging at it, cutting off a lock and burning it to make her die. She snorted. <laughs> the lame superstitions. If she had died every time someone had burnt her hair, she'd be a thousand times dead. Laughing at the people, Emanand whispered. <laughs> what else to laugh at besides them and their beliefs? Ojit stood up straight. 
from leaning on the wall and walked to the window. There are benefits to no hair. Ojit smiled. All advisors shaved their heads. They were required to. Dumb beliefs. A door silently opened and closed. Only Emma nod and Ojit heard. Emma shared. Jit, she whispered, smiling, her name for the younger girl. Emma Sher. Ojit bowed respectfully from the room. Entering her own quarters within her brother's apartment, she quietly called, Kanika. A low growl sounded from a, neighbor, from a neighboring room and a lion emerged. It was not a soft golden color like the pharaoh's pets, but a dark brown, almost black, with streaks of gold in its mane. Imanon had rescued the kitten, Kanika, from being killed because of his unglorious colors and had get, and given him to Ojit to raise from a cub. He now stood almost to Ojit's shoulder, a full-grown male, yet still tame to those who treated him correctly. Ojit ran a hand through his thick mane as he lay down at her feet. She sank to the floor with him and resumed her knife sharpening. Emma Sharon and Imanon stood close, wrapped in a warm embrace. How much longer must we remain in secret? Emma Sharon whispered. Not long, my love, Imanon answered. I shall soon take you to the Forbidden City, where we will live with nothing to hide from. Alone? No, together. <laughs> this is when I started losing it when I was reading it. I was laughing my head off. They kissed their souls becoming one, becoming entwined. It's like I'm writing the crappiest romance novel. Okay. Unknown footsteps ran towards Imanon's house, fast on the desert sands. Many people, breathing hard, led by one man. How could she betray us like this? He hissed through clenched teeth. Our honor already stripped and she sinks lower. His pace quickened, as did the guards behind him. Their breath left them, and they parted, the kiss still lingering on their lips. And Ojit? asked Emusher. She will know, and leave, to come to the city and find us. But she still has a life to live. So do we. And they were one again. The doors burst open. The lovers' passions were broken. Emusher boomed a voice. Father, she whispered, Emanon, you must flee. No, this is my house. He has no right. I'm his daughter. He has every right. It's forbidden for us to love. The footsteps came closer. I will not leave you. You must. Only you know the ancient ways. You must find me again. I will not. Emanon, it was Ojit pulling on his arm. She's right. We must. No. Her father was in the room now. Only a curtain hid the lovers from view. <gasps> oh my gosh, what's going to happen? I wonder, if you've seen the mummy, you know what's going to happen. Go, Imanand. Our love will falter if you stay. But if you bring me back, it will forever be one. Like some BS I wrote. I can't. Yes, you can, Ojit growled, pulling him away. Ojit, get off me. No, you must see that she's right. Ojit, get away. Emanand. Emosher was near. She reached up and kissed him, pleaded with him. Her father was pulling back the curtain. She let go, and Ojit 
dragged Emanon from the room as he cast a longing glance back at Emma's share. I don't know if I want to read any more of this. Let's see. Um, oh, yeah. We have to read a little bit further because of this line. Ready? So her father just came into the house. She's not supposed to be loving Emanon. Blah, blah, blah. Her father yanked the curtain back to see Emma Shear lounging on the floor. Slowly, she stood up to face him. What business have you here, daughter? He spat out. Only a message from the pharaoh to Imanon, father. She bowed, glancing behind her father to the guards standing there. And what would that message be so late at night? Ojit sucked in her breath. What would it be? Emma Shear reached into her servant robe, searching for something. The message is... Emma Cher pulled out a knife. Ojit smiled. Knives were the best weapons. Ever. Emma Cher's father tensed when he saw the silver knife, and Emma Cher finished her message. No one can break my love for Imanand. Yeah. So, that's the crap I used to write. I was cracking up, though, like that whole part about them kissing and loving and me trying to be romantic while writing this ripoff of The Mummy was cracking me up, and I hope it cracked you up a bit, too. Now I want to get on to some better writings, though, that I thought would be fun to share before I end this episode. One of them is some slam poetry, which, if you don't know, is... And I don't know if this is the exact definition of slam poetry, but I'll tell you what I did. I took a page of the New York Times... Of the New York Times. Sorry, that sounded a little muddled. And you basically black stuff out to create a poem around the words that are left. So I thought it would be fun to share some of those because this is something that anyone can do. You don't have to be a writer to grab a magazine page, a book page, a newspaper page, and just black words out to create your own poem or your own story from within those words. So these are some of the poems slash stories that I've created by doing that. A fleet of limousines heading to Wednesday night and Thursday afternoon. A possible challenge by guests at the hotel paying their bills violated the Constitution. Here's another one. Friday with his associates have the authority to redirect or stop the hacking of November. And then, let's see, we have some down here. The day's programming was God and bagpipes. Two friends danced and sang along to God. Next one is, the volatile minds decided to boycott understanding. Boom. I thought that one was pretty good. Here's the last little slam poetry one that I did from this page of the times. Nightmare moose killed when winter is late. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so that's an easy thing anyone can do. Take a article, take anything that has words on it, black out what you don't want and keep what you do. And then you have your own story. They can be silly. They can be whimsical. They can be serious. They can be trying to make a point. They can be whatever, but that's kind of like a fun writing activity, especially if you're struggling 
or just not having a good day and you want to do something fun or even if you're just not a writer, period, but you just want to have some fun. My mom doesn't think she's a writer or a storyteller in any way, but we went to this free art. It was like a free demonstration of art classes that a art college or art school in the area actually has. So they do like a free day once or twice a year where you can come and sample classes, basically. And one of them was something like this, where we each got a page from an old book and we blacked things out. And my mom thought it was really cool and she really enjoyed it, even though she thinks she's not a writer or anything. But that's something everyone can do. And it's really fun. So I encourage the slam poetry, you know, blacking out the words, keeping what you want in. It's fun. Next... I have two more. This is just kind of showing you how my writings progressed, I guess. So the first one was that Clud book, How Dinosaurs Lived, from when I was six, I would guess. I have no idea. How the Leopard Got His Spots from sometime in early, early elementary school, like not later than third grade. And then my Soul Eater one, which has changed a lot, and my Ancient Egyptian one, which actually when I was rereading it last night before recording it today, because I thought it was hilarious, and I was like, why not make an episode out of this? Crap. I literally just lost my train of thought. I was talking about those ones, Soul Eater. Oh, from like my early middle school days up until the slam poetry I probably did that in college just for fun but we're going back a dial here and we're going to my freshman or sophomore year of high school I was in a creative writing class and we had to do a creative nonfiction assignment where we eventually turned in five ones and creative nonfiction is I don't I feel like it's hard to describe, but it's literally just in the name. It's nonfiction, but presented in a more creative way so that it's not just like a history book or a textbook. And this is written about my stuffed animal dog, Purdy. And here it is. It arrived on Christmas when I was four or five, maybe even six. If I remember correctly, it was the first present I opened, and for the rest of the morning, I clung to it. The stuffed dog was a light golden brown with bushy ears and tail. She had droopy eyes that looked funny in a good way, and a soft velvet black nose. She must have been about as big as me at the time, the best present I could have asked for. I named her Purdy, from the movie 101 Dalmatians, and she still remains purdy. I used to pet her and comb her short fur that never really needed combing, but that is what little girls do. I'd feed her and snuggle with her. She was my favorite loyal hound. Now she lies atop a cage, a real dog's cage. She's surrounded by other animals of years gone past. Her eyes seem to droop more, and her fluffy ears aren't as soft as they once were. The glossy brown fur has now faded to a dull, yet still lovable brown. She lost her tail when she was used as a missile, launched at a babysitter. It wasn't his fault. It was mine. And even though I was at least eight or nine at the time, I was worried about her for the rest of the night. I put her in a comfortable place and told my mom when she came home. 
Instead of complaining, she took Purdy and stitched up the hole, though she could not save the tail. Purdy sits on the left side of the cage, gazing out at my room. She's always been there, watching. When my dad left for Iraq in third grade, and now when he's there again. She saw me grow and graduate elementary, then get braces. She was there when the real dog came, another present, but she didn't complain. Come rain or snow, sun or not, she's always been there. And I wonder if she wish and I wonder if she wishes I would cuddle with her again like the small child I once was. Perhaps I will tonight. So yeah, that's a story, just a short one, creative nonfiction about my stuffed animal dog, Purdy, who I do still have. A few things have changed. My dog passed away. Oh gosh, it's been almost eight years now, which is insane. And I finally was able to pass off his dog cage last, was it last year or the year before? Two years ago. So it took me six years to get rid of his cage to someone who could actually use it. And so I still have her, but now she's sitting on the floor. Um, she's next to my other stuffed animal dogs that I still have. Because I do. Every once in a while, I do like cuddling with them. And I just like holding on to something when I sleep. And so it's really nice to have something there. And yeah, she's still here with me. And yes, I did totally 100% launch her at a babysitter once. Me and my friend Shelby. Shout out to Shelby. <laughs> used to terrorize my poor babysitters that came to watch us while my parents went out to have dinner or go to a movie, etc. And I remember who it was. It was a babysitter named Adam. I'll keep his last name to myself, obviously. But yeah, we just decided it would be hilarious to launch all my stuffed animals at him. And I grabbed Purdy by her tail and like flung her over my shoulder and then flung her forward towards him. And her tail popped off. <laughs> And I don't know if it hit Adam. Sorry, Adam, by the way, you were a very patient babysitter. And we were, I don't know if we were horrible children. Like, we never really hurt each other, but we were just crazy and trying to have fun. And, of course, the funnest thing to do when a babysitter is around is to torment the babysitter. So, sorry about that, Adam. And sorry, Purdy, that I made you lose your tail. And, yes, I was freaking out when it happened and absolutely distraught. And my mom came and stitch her up so she doesn't have a tail anymore which is kind of funny and ironic because my dog actually had to get his tail amputated not all the way but it was something I didn't know that dogs can often get infections in their tails because they wag them and their tails hit things and then it causes nerve damage and they want to chew it because there's nerve damage and it feels uncomfortable which makes sense, like you don't want to be in discomfort, but then they chew it and then it gets infected. And so that's basically what happened is my dog had nerve damage. We tried everything to get him to stop chewing his tail and it never worked. He was like a mastermind of getting around the cone. He didn't care if there was something painted on it. So eventually we had to get his tail chopped and it was, it basically became as short as Purdy's tail originally was. So he still had a bit of a stubby tail but it was definitely shorter than what it once was because he used to have a sort of, he wasn't a husky, but he had that kind of curly tail that they have 
where it curls back up and then it just became a little sausage dub. <laughs> that was kind of sentimental to read and to think about. And that was really, that was fun. And I will definitely go pet Purdy after this and give her some attention because yes, I still have her and I probably will never get rid of her because she is the first stuffed animal dog that I can remember having. I know I have pictures of me with Spot, which is he's just a Dalmatian and I still love him too. So had him on my bed the other night cuddling with him when I wasn't feeling well. But I don't know if I had him before Purdy because Purdy, I feel like, is the OG. She's the original stuffed animal dog. So, ha! My parents were always like, you have too many stuffed animal dogs. Well, blame it on them for buying me her first and then getting me obsessed with stuffed animal dogs. <laughs> That's that one. I would like to end with the pilgrimage, though, because this is one of my favorite things I've ever written. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure it was for a senior. Oh, wait, it says the date on here. So I would have been a sophomore. 2010. <clears throat> yes. So, by the way, that creative nonfiction I would have written in Mr. Wing's creative writing class. So shout out to Mr. Wing from Air Academy High School. He doesn't teach there anymore. No idea if he's still alive. I hope he is. He was a great, nice man and encouraged my writing a lot. And I appreciate that. But And he got me into the creative nonfiction writing. I mean, I don't do it a lot at all. But it's something that I know exists now and is in the back of my mind and something that I could do if I wanted to. So thanks, Mr. Wing. This one is from when I was a sophomore. And it would have been in Miss Austin. Shout out to Miss Austin. Her, I feel like it was an honors English class. And we had just read not all of Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. But we had read the beginning part where it describes all the characters who are going on their pilgrimage. And then we had to write our own with five different characters and describing them and where they were going and why. So this is my version. I just entitled it The Pilgrimage. I don't know if we had to have a title or not, but here is my Canterbury Tales version. The sun shone down, warming the icy ground. The flowers poked up, waiting to be found. On the 13th day of the sixth month, June, five people, five people, Five people left their homes starting at noon. They closed their doors, beginning down the road. One lagged behind, carrying a large load. They were all traveling to the same place, not all of them bearing a happy face. To that old country in Romania, more formally known as Transylvania. Castle Dracula, the destination, to a stranger time, a once great nation. And with these thoughts in mind, my dear reader, I shall start with the elderly leader. A historian he was, old and wise, who always told truth, who never told lies. He wore a simple frayed tweed coat of knee length, adorning his legs black silk pants of strength. And on his chest, a vibrant shirt of red, a fedora protecting his bald head. Many a wrinkle adorned his thin face, and while walking he kept a steady pace. His wallet he liked to keep nicely stashed, 
A penny earned, a penny saved, not trashed. Upon his face, a golden pair of specks. To the castle he went to pay respects. Now, let this man be thoroughly explained. He was a man who had been once acclaimed. Born to a lowly family he was, then became interested in ancient laws. For days on end he would sit and read books, not caring to help his brothers clean nooks. When his parents saw there was no escape, they saved money, a fortune took its shape. But instead of spending for new tools, they shipped him off to one of the best schools. It is known he didn't cry when going, he left swiftly down the river flowing. And at the school he gained his knowledge, then having more money, went off to college. When he graduated first in his class, with learned colleagues he commenced a big clash. Because he was once poor, but was no more, he kept his head high, away from the floor. And soon his reputation spread so far that he was treated like a royal czar. Now thin and aged, a dream had to be done. That is why he traveled beneath the high sun. From this castle, information he'd hoard and spin a tale of the vampire lord. He hoped his book would be a bestseller. From the prophet, he'd buy a wine cellar. If he succeeded, people would know his name. To become worldly rich was his aim. He'd come far from the house that had crumbled, but had forgotten how to be humble. And so, with this goal set firm in his mind, Castle Dracula's treasures he would find. Traveling next in line, not far from the man, came a young, die-hard Dracula fan. She had once read the book by Bram Stoker, and was now addicted, like a smoker. Everywhere she went, she screamed his name, Dracula, known be your exquisite fame. On the day she set out to his castle, picking her clothes had been a hassle. Finally, she'd settled on a black shirt and a long, flowy, blood-red skirt. Upon the shirt were printed these letters, I am a fan and therefore am better. Above these words were two pointy white teeth, dripping blood on a garlic garland wreath. Her skirt barely covered her large hip bones. For this, she blamed Twinkies, cake, and wishbones. Walking down the road, she held her head high, glaring at the lowlifes that passed her on by. She thought of when she'd reached the great walls and then quietly tiptoed down the halls. She came in hope of catching a glimpse then she would take him and press down her lips. He'd turn her into one such as himself. Years would slip by and be put on the shelf. She would become pretty and never age, no longer treated like a simple stage. No more gawks, no more stares, no rude comments. Eating, eating had been her accident. But now with hope set firmly in her mind, Castle Dracula's treasures she would find. The third man, a bit reluctant to go, Simon was his name, he was feeling low. It was for a school project he'd come far, and now he was beyond his comfort bar. Oh, he was plenty smart, there was no doubt, but he'd rather be at home catching trout. He never partook in more than needed, but to his master's word he had heeded. He'd meet with his classmates at the large doors, 
then solemnly trudge across the cold floors. A worn brown leather coat he had to wear, humiliation he could hardly bear. Everywhere his dark blue eyes darted, he could see better clothes and it smarted. His torn jeans, his threadbare shirt, and scuffed shoes showed the others he could never choose. All old hand-me-downs made up his wardrobe, and he knew that people would always probe. Yet deep inside, he knew this trip was good. He knew his kind professor understood. He was quite bored by the history side, but since Dracula was known worldwide. Even if Simon began to heavy drool, he was required to attend for school. This is why he left his safe and small home, and at noon along the road he did roam. Knowing he'd be back at the end of the day to play with his pencils, his paint, his clay. With pictures of art set firm in his mind, Castle Dracula's treasures he might find. The fourth person in line, a lady was, dressed in hot, flashy pink and purple fuzz. The shirt barely covered her bulging weight, plainliness she did and always would hate. Makeup caked her usually pockmarked face. She did not dirty her clothes as she paced. Then again, she didn't walk very fast. In fact, to the castle, she'd arrive last. Every few minutes, she paused for breath. If she worked harder than needed, it meant death. Madame Butterfly, she called herself, and in her pocket, she carried great wealth. But when she saw those in more need, she would never stop ignoring their pleas. With her head held abnormally high, she'd glare down her pointy nose and pass them by. If one of them clawed at her fashion coat, in a fury, she'd turn and smack the dolt. When in a city, she would look around, see if a handsome gentleman be found. Every time it was another one, she thought it was all just glorious fun. When she was younger, her old uncle had died. He left her his fortune, so she'd not cried. Instead, she hoarded his great treasures, and she had used it to sate her pleasures. Now she's an interior designer, going to the castle to make it finer. She'd see its gray dullness and say, Pooh-pooh, I'll buy this and cover it in frou-frou. Soon it will be shades of mauve, orange, and red. And now that all this has been said, with her fantasy palace in her mind, Castle Dracula's treasure, treasures she'd thought she'd find. The last person traveling was a man. He was fairly tall and pale, not so tan. He stayed behind the others out of sight, not daring to go into the harsh light. For if he did, he would light a fire. To the world, he was a horrid vampire. Because of this disease, he had no home. For an eternity, he'd had to roam. Yet he never complained, kept his mouth closed. On his person, he had not many clothes. He had adorned himself all in black. Black pants and shirt, a dark cape over his back. But despite the darkness on the outside, the man was not too bad on the inside. When he saw a person in greater need, he stopped and gave money, a saintly deed. And although he did not have much in life, he thanked God he was spared from worldly strife. He had no need for food, water, and sleep. All he needed was blood from the pure sheep. 
and despite his killings he was quite just, because for human blood he did not lust. It was only a little that he'd take, then leave money for the family's sake. Though some of his brothers would frown at him, he'd try not to lash back, that was a sin. But sometimes he'd lose his calm demeanor, an unstoppable rage, kill the wiener. With the great strength others would leave him alone, he'd carved his reputation out of stone. Now out in the world he traveled again, away from the comfort of his dark den. To the castle it was a pilgrimage, for Dracula he went to pay homage. Yet there was another thought in his brain, perhaps he'd find a home where he could be sane. Watching the others go down the long road, he knew they'd leave his future abode. One of them looked like she might cause trouble. She looked like a giant pink waddling bubble. Maybe he would dispose of her fatness. She looked like she was very tactless. With his future home set firm in his mind, Castle Dracula's treasure he would find. I picked this as my last one to read because it is something I wrote, well, in 2010, so 13 years ago. Boo-hoo-hoo, I'm so old. Okay. But it is something I wrote 13 years ago that I am still very proud of when I read it. There are a few spelling errors and mistakes that my teacher, uh, Miss Austin, noted as well, but (laughs) she was very kind to me. She said, It was well done and clever and witty, and I just thought I would end with it because, like I said, even though it was 13 years ago and some of the writing I've even done, I was going to say in more modern times, like recently, I'm not as proud of as this poem. I delete it. I get rid of it. But this is something that I've always kept, no matter how many times I find it tucked away in my cupboard at home or whatever, I still hold on to it because it's something I'm proud of. And I think that's important to do as a writer is to hold on to some things, even if they're old, even if they're kind of silly, that you're proud of. Like, I'm not proud of the ancient Egyptian one. The Solator one was very meh. I think the dinosaur book and the leopard got its spots. Those just make me giggle and laugh because I was so young. But this one and the slam poetry and the purdy one... I'm so really proud of. And so I think it's important to remember that, especially when you're having a hard time as a writer, that you have done good and you can do good again. And I, yeah, just because I was home and I had these with me um, accessible, I just thought I would read some of them for this episode of the podcast. So this isn't really about anything. It has no topic except my random writings and how I obviously have been writing since I was six, writing these horrible clud books about dinosaurs and how they lived and got hurt and then died. (laughs) Which guys, like literally go onto my Instagram, Tate's APB, when this comes, I will take pictures of this and I will post them on there. So you can match up and follow along with these silly illustrations of my book. That's today's episode. If you liked this episode and you liked hearing a random sampling of some of my older writings, please let me know. I can totally do it again. I can read some of my newer stuff. I have a lot of stuff saved on my computer now, even from years ago, so I can take samplings from there. I can take samplings from my newer stuff. 
If you're interested in me reading some of the novels that I have already written and finished, like a first chapter or a certain section that I love that might be completely out of context for you to listen to, but because you might want to hear what I'm working on right now and how it actually reads now compared to my writing of the ancient Egyptian story, um, let me know. Because I think it would be fun to just occasionally have a little I'm sharing my writing episode because this one entertained me. I didn't laugh as much reading it the second time because like I said, I found it last night and was reading it and laughing my head off. But I hope you guys enjoyed my horrible ancient Egyptian story and how dinosaurs lived, how the leopard got its spots and all my other ones. These episodes are longer now. I don't like I said, I don't have a format when I do these. So sorry if you hate how long they're getting. The next one will probably be shorter. It will have a theme again of something and it will just be me recording it as far as I know. So unless anything happens, it'll just be me next time. Actual theme. Once again, hold on to those writings that you love. Remember that you have done good. Like you are still a writer. You're still a creative person. Even if you're having a hard time, just hold on to those good ones. Hold on to those good thoughts, to those good memories those good pieces, those good lines, even if it's just one line. I remember I wrote a line the other day in a story that I was just so proud of. I was just like laughing maniacally to myself because it's an evil character who says it, but it just so perfectly encompassed him. And it's just a single line. I think I might've mentioned this on a different episode. Maybe it was even episode two. So it's been a while then since I've actually written that line, but I was just so happy with how it was that just laughed to myself about how fantastic that line was for that character. It's all right. Sometimes you need breaks. And sometimes it's hard, but you write awesome things and you're going to keep writing awesome things. And just remember that when you're having a bad day. Thank you so much for listening. You can find me on Instagram at Tate's APB. That's T as in Tiramisu. A as in Apple. T as in Tiramisu. E as in Elephant. S as in Sam. A as an apple, P as in Peter, and B as in boy, tatesapb.com. Or sorry, that's my website. Tatesapb.com is my website. You can find me there too. You can also follow me on Instagram at tatesapb. I do post about my podcast there, and I do occasionally post pictures and such there as well about life and blah. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe, share for sure, especially if you're enjoying it. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy reading. Enjoy writing, enjoy life.